everybody. Welcome to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 237. And with today, I'd like to say officially, spring is in the air. And the way I know is because the allergies are in my head. So uh, as you hear a little bit of that, like slight little thing down there in the voice, um, I kind of like this time of year because I actually think it makes my voice sound a little bit intriguing. Most of the time, I think I just have a slightly whiny voice, uh, but it, it brings the registry down a little bit, gives me a little bit of a deeper kind of thing. If I really lean into it, it gives me that kind of, uh, if somebody was giving you like, I don't know, like a meditation app, I don't know, so like leave it to the evangelical pastor to talk about a meditation app. All right. So anyway, yeah, but it's spring in the air. I feel the allergies. But today, man, I woke up. It was sunny out. It was like 31 degrees. Frost was over everything. But but still, it felt like spring, even though there's frost with the sun and then everything turning green and all the buds coming out on the trees. Loving it, loving it. This is one of my favorite times of the year. I'm weird because in the Pacific Northwest, I don't love the winter. I like the spring and I like the fall. I don't love the winter and I don't always love the summer, mainly because I become a slave to my yard for several months straight, right? Like sometimes I love working in the yard and sometimes I'm like, man, it's been a crazy week and I let it go. And the yard's like, yeah, I'm a jungle boss. I will simply take over in about seven days if you don't keep me tame. So you know, kind of depends. I like sitting on the porch in the summer. That's fantastic. I love the weather of the Pacific Northwest in the summer, but some of the tasks that I have to tend to week in, week out can be a little challenging. Therefore, spring's fun because everything grows and I can kind of sit back and wait a little while before I have to fully manage it. So you're not here for gardener tips. You're not here for yard work. I'm not like an architect for landscaping or anything like that. No, we are here to figure out how can we be everyday missionaries. And we're in a bit of a reconstructing process as we have had a deconstructing process in the podcast with the whole goal of trying to be more like Jesus. And I'm so fixated on this, like more than a lot of things that I get caught up in in my head. uh, This is what I'm caught up in. And and, and for a whole slew of reasons, right? Like, I think part of it is uh, the more I continue to read about next generations, you know, they, they really are kind of stepping away from faith. And really, a lot of the trajectory showing they may not come back. And I'm asking myself, why? Is that like just simply because, you know, they're being more exposed to a secularized world and from that they're going, hey, there seems to be so many different ways to God based on the fact that they're very globalized. Is that just enough for them to say, hey, I'm trying to be open-minded. I want to have this whole coexist framework in my head and therefore I'm not going to lock down onto my own faith because nobody should lock down onto any one of their particular faiths saying it's the only way and therefore I'm going to be just, again, more flexible, fluid, and open-minded. Like, is that the thing. Or where I kind of tend to lean is more the thing, hey, I grew up in it and I didn't see a whole lot of power and transformation behind it. So why would I buy into it? I tend to lean more that way. I think there's a lot of people that lean toward, no, this is the liberal culture taking our kids away. This is a secularized world. This is how pluralism and relativism has corrupted the minds of Teens and 20s and 30-somethings everywhere, all Gen Zers, all Millennials, all got sucked into this whole thing, and that's why it is what it is. I I don't quite buy into that. And the reason I don't buy into that is because when Christianity took off in the first century, it was pluralized. It was in its own way, uh, you know, like co-opted by a form of of kind of open-mindedness, which was every religion could be in the Roman Empire as long as you just worship Caesar and everybody had their views and thoughts and people were sleeping around. And it's not like worse today than it was then. In fact, I would argue that it is far better today than it was then. And that's another argument for another day. But I honestly look and I go, man, we have 
a high view of of human ethics and values globally. Not all countries play by that, but by and large, we recognize a human atrocity as a human atrocity. You go back to the first century, there was no such thing as human atrocities. It was just like some guys rolled in, did some bad stuff, moved on, and nobody really cared, right? So higher view of human dignity, human value, human worth. Uh, you know, we're working harder to feed our friends and our enemies. Uh, medicine has massively changed uh, the fabric of caring for human beings and, again, kind of offering a path forward for the sanctity of life. Uh, the fact that even the passage I'm going to read today was to slaves and how slavery is pretty much frowned upon or outlawed in most places in the world. All of that shows that we have gotten better over the course of time, not worse. And therefore, from that, when I look at the first century and I go, how did Christians change a pluralized culture? How did people come to Christ when there was such a wide vision of what was accepted? Um, and I go, it was because Christianity showed power. It showed transformation. It showed something compelling that people went, I want that in my life. And so from that, then I fast forward to the 21st century and I look at, again, all of these, what I think are just silly um, band-aids to try to patch how we're losing a next generation and the things we're trying to blame because we're losing them. And I think it makes us feel better to say, it's the world, it's the world that's doing it. And I go, man, you know, certainly the world is pulling, but I always get concerned that the Christian church may be pushing at the same time, right? And the way to turn that to where we're the pullers in as the world is pulling out is that we are pulling with something compelling, that we are something different than what they have maybe seen before. And so with that, this whole quest is saying, okay, how can we start embodying this Jesus thing? How can we take ownership of the concepts that then people go, there's something about that that is so unique. Like, I don't see that in my normal life. I want to know what more of that is about. And so from that, it means we are then living out uh, Jesus's values, because I think those are the things that are like the 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 mass that brings gravity that pulls stuff in, right? I think that's what it is. The mass, the compelling draw is Jesus, because that's what I see in the Gospels. Jesus was a compelling draw. People couldn't wait to be around that dude, and he was perfect. He was holy. He was God. And people were like, yeah, I want to chill with him. Like, why is that? And I think it was just that he embodied certain concepts and traits. We've talked about some of that on the podcast, that the only time Jesus ever self-identifies his traits is he says, I'm gentle and lowly, right? And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The, the yoke was this tool that was used to kind of ratchet different uh, farm animals together to pull a plow. So it might be oxen or some form of cattle or whatever else. You might even be able to like yoke smaller animals like sheep or goats, whatever. But you, you would use this wooden beam between the two animals to pull the plow. And Jesus is like, man, when you team up with me, when you when you tether to me, uh, I'm going to make this journey much more restful and light. And I'm going to give you what you need, but you want to learn from me. And that's what he says. You want to learn from me to do this. And so that's kind of the whole quest here in the podcast is to say, okay, I'm going to learn from Jesus in such a way that I can bring Jesus to my environment. And so with that, today, the topic is bring Jesus to work day. Every day. All right. So um, just like it would be bring your daughter to work day or bring your son to work day. This is bring Jesus to work day and bring Jesus to work day every single day. 
Because here's the thing. Um, I was reading a book here just yesterday, and it was talking about, you know, the amount of hours we sleep over the course of our life. We tie our shoes over the course of our life. You know, we eat food. We watch TV, all that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, I, I forget what they said. Like, if you live to be 75 or 80, whatever it was, and then you just took the actual concrete hours of stuff that we do, over 20 years of our life is spent at work, right? So a pretty big yield, you know, like I think another 20 hours are spent sleeping. So to give you perspective of your 70 or 80 years, like nearly half, you're either sawing logs or you're clocking in. That, that's a pretty big chunk of time. So if we're going to talk about then what it means to have a missional disposition in the world, and we're going to talk about what it means to um, bring the kingdom to bear on our environment, we should probably look and say, well, the place I spend the most time per day, guess what? It's not with your wife and kids or your husband and kids or with your parents or with your friends or whatever. The bulk of your time is spent at work or spent at school, right? If you're a student. So reasoning through how do I then uh, bring Jesus to that environment matters pretty heavily, right? And what's great about this is Paul knew this, right? So there's this passage in the little letter Colossians, one of the pieces of literature that Paul wrote in the New Testament, and and he wrote to slaves. And I want to highlight this really quick because I always, it's always weird when you read a passage and you're going to use the example of how slaves should conduct themselves, and then you're talking about how we should conduct ourselves like slaves did in the first century, and everybody blows over the top of it, like, oh yeah, slavery was just a thing, whatever, like, it was no big deal. No, slavery was terrible, man. I, you know, so, like, Paul is operating in not the world that he wants, but the world that he has, you know? And so, with that, Paul tried to move a lot of things forward. He actually presented a lot of interesting reforms on more egalitarian views of women in marriage. Uh, he pushed a lot more of a sense of equality among different groups of people. Jews and Gentiles are kind of all the same. So he was the dude that was moving the bar a little bit toward equity. Uh, you know, not nearly as far down the road as we've gotten as a race, but he certainly was doing stuff that in the times were a little counterintuitive. And even when he talks about masters and slaves, he says things to masters that were moving the bar, right? Like, hey, you can't be dorks and jerks and punks and thugs to all of your slaves. You need to deal with them with dignity and honor and value, though they're still your slaves. This is where it still comes up short. Paul still sort of accommodated the slave master model. I don't want to take away from the fact that that's what he did. And we can always ask the questions like, why didn't he just roll in and say, hey, this is an old dead system. Let's be done with it. I don't know why Paul didn't do that. Maybe he just looked and said, hey, that's too much, too far, too soon. Can't do it. So I'm going to try to meet this thing in the middle a little bit more. And so I'm going to tell masters, hey, you need to treat people like they're actual human beings and slaves. You need to meet your masters in the middle and you need to do certain things. Now, with this, maybe another thing I want to just want to add really quick as the Bible teacher before we get into the practical elements is the slavery of the first century different than the chattel slavery of the American South and the colonies before that and everything else where much of slavery in the New Testament period was A, not related to a particular ethnicity or racial profile. It was really just, hey, you're poor, you're going to become a slave and you're going to become a slave because you need money and you have no way to do it. So if you're working for a dude by becoming a slave for a certain amount of time, uh, then that's going to be, be the way you survive. So, so a lot of slavery in the first century, not all of it. There was some where you were just co-opted into slavery. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says that enslavers are really among some of the most sinful people 
and the culture. So Paul acknowledged that enslavers, those who force people into slavery, very sinful people, right? He said that outright. But but for a lot of people, they would enter into a contract of slavery or servanthood, which means for a certain amount of time, they would be indentured to an individual. But during that time, they could own their own property. They could have their own possessions. They had a certain level of autonomy. It was just they were more contracted as a worker for that person for a length of time. And most people did not die slaves in the Roman Empire, but at some point they were freed. And then from that, they were able to do their own things. Or when they reached their end of their contract for freedom, they would re-up as a servant or a slave of an individual. So slightly different model. I'm not defending the model. I'm not saying it was a healthy thing, but it probably more mirrors what we all go through, which is when we take a job, in some ways we are indenturing indenturing ourselves to that employer, to that company or whatever else, either by way of a contract or by way of the fact that, you know what, if I don't show up to work every day, I won't get paid. And if I don't get paid, I can't eat, I can't pay my rent or whatever it is. And therefore you're sort of, you're kind of shackled to the system a little bit, right? You just have to work, right? So in that sense, I think passages that that kind of have this example to us of things that were then can be somewhat helpful. So if this is take Jesus to work day and we're going to get to a little bit of the, the, you know, the granular stuff and what that means, but I want to start with this passage. So Paul is writing and he says this, let me move something out of the way here so I can fully see the verse. He says, slaves, or to us, I'm going to say employees, workers, uh, students, right? He says, obey your earthly masters, your boss, your manager, your teachers, the volunteer organizer. This can be for people that volunteer in the community. This all applies, right? Obey them. Do what they ask you to do. He says, obey your masters in everything you do. So if you have a Bible, underline everything. In the Greek, everything means everything. It's everything you do, right? As soon as you clock in, everything you do, you want to be thinking in this way. He says, try to please them at all times, not just when they are watching you, which is awesome because so often we're like, the boss left. Now we can kick back, put up our feet, have some coffee, kick some jokes off, whatever it is. And he's like, no, you want to please them all the time, whether they're absent or present, doesn't matter. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear for the Lord. So I want you to notice these words are starting to stack up. Uh, Obey in everything. Please them at all times, not just when they see you. Be sincere in this so you can't be fake or artificial about it. Why are you doing it though? You're doing it for Jesus. So in other words, what Paul is getting at here is when we go to work and we're bringing Jesus to work with us day, every day, we are doing it for him. This is, in other words, an environment that gives us the excuse to show off Jesus and what we do, to show off the gospel and what we do. And, and maybe I want to make a link there, link there really quick because there's been this debate within evangelicalism and I'm just going to come outright clean with this, right? So the debate is there is this old quote that is allegedly uh, Augustine. I'm not really sure if it is. Like it might be pseudepigraphal, which is a fancy word for saying somebody else wrote it and ascribed his name to it. Uh, but, but it's this idea of preach the gospel and when necessary, use words, right? And some people go, that's brilliant because what it's saying is live it out. And then when you have the opportunity, actually share the message. Some evangelicals have come out and said, you know what? That's stupid. The gospel is a message though. You can't just preach the gospel without words and then occasionally use words and think you preach the gospel um, or shared the gospel in any way because the gospel is words. And in particular, they'll say the gospel is the words of Jesus died for your sins, rose from the grave, believe in him and you'll be saved. That's the gospel. I don't disagree that that may be a 
piece of the gospel. I want to be clear here for a second. That is a piece of the gospel. But if somebody thinks by bringing up those four basic ideas, he died, he rose for your sin, so repent and be saved kind of thing. Like, you know, that, that encapsulation of things. Maybe that was five. I don't know. Um, I can turn it back to four if I want. So, uh, but that encapsulation will go, if I've said that, I've done the gospel, I've shared the gospel, I've preached the gospel. But when we go through the gospels, when Jesus preached the gospel, you know what was absent from his message? Uh, I died for your sins. I rose from the dead. Repent of your sins and believe in me. Like Jesus did not preach that message when he preached the gospel in the gospels. All right. That's the weird part. Like go back and look, you can read it yourself. I'm not making this up, right? Like the idea of the cross and resurrection and repent and believe is a post gospels component of the gospels. But if Jesus preached the gospel, he had some things in there that were different than that because he didn't preach that. He told his disciples on occasions, like I'm going to go, I'm going to die. But in there, he never says in relationship to that. And that is where you need to repent. And I'm doing this for your sins and all of that architecture of what we see as the gospel today, that flows into the book of Acts, that flows into the epistles. That's not what we find in the gospels. What we find in the gospels is that Jesus preached a gospel of liberating the captives, uh, caring for the poor, giving sight to the blind. We see this like in uh, like Luke chapter four. We see this in the book of Isaiah from Isaiah 40 to 66, those chapters. That's much of where Jesus camps as his type of gospel, right? Much of Jesus's messages are tethered to promises related to Isaiah. This is becoming a real theology lesson instead of a practical thing. I'm bringing Jesus to work day, isn't it? So, um, but the point being then that what the preaching of the gospel is, it is both what you do and what you say. It is the things that bring flourishing to the world, which is actually the, the origin story of the gospel. Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says, God preached the gospel to Abraham. So way back in Genesis, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. In other words, the gospel brings flourishing to the practical things of the world. Catch that again. The gospel, part of what the gospel message is, and therefore part of what we embody as gospel presenters, is we bring flourishing to the world. And if 20 hours of your life is spent at work or in school or in your vocation, then guess what? That should be a prime place you bring the gospel, which is bringing flourishing, which is setting free the captives and bringing sight to the blind in our current context, doing practical, tangible, helpful things, right? Doing that is also gospel work. That's kingdom work. God's reclaiming all things. Jesus is really all about the restoration of making all things new. And we're a part of that process. So with that, we want to then enter into environments where we are flourishing bringers, flourishing creators, flourishing makers, tangibly, practically, concretely, because that's gospel work, right? So this is why he's saying serve sincerely because your reverent fear of the Lord, right? Then he goes on, he says, work willingly, whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than people because you're a part of his reclamation project, right? So this again is a context and an excuse for you to showcase what God cares about, which is reclaiming all things and you're working hard to do that. So you're making an investment that's a gospel investment in action as well as a gospel investment investment in attitude, which we're gonna get into in a minute. And all of that gives then, kind of like equity in your life to then, when necessary, use words, to use the Augustine phony but really brilliant statement. All right, so then he says, remember 
that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that your master, and that the master you are serving is Christ. So you're not working for Microsoft. You're not going to school at Cedarcrest. You're not clocking in for, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, a Vista or I don't know, pick your poison, you know, like there's all sorts of things we do, right? Uh, but really you're not working for them. You don't work for them, right? You don't work for Evergreen Hospital. You don't work for Redemption Church. You are working for Jesus. You're not volunteering in the community with the PTA or whatever it is. And it's, you're working for Jesus. He says, but if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for your wrong because you've done it, right? For God shows no favorites. Here's what I love. He's like, if you're a dork and you get, you get punched in the throat for your dorkiness, that's on you, man. He's like, that's your problem. So if you're a bad student, bad employee, bad volunteer, you're complaining, you're whiny, you're you're negligent, you're slow to action, you get written up a lot, whatever it is, he's like, A, you are not at all doing stuff for me. This is all about you just, you know, again, like clocking in and coasting. You're just dialing it in and being done. He says, but if you're doing it for me, man, you're going to show up every day. You're going to show up big because you're bringing Jesus to work day. In other words, you are wearing the threads of Jesus on your life when you clock in and that really matters. So in light of that, then looking at this passage, understanding the framework, what we're talking about, everything else, here's some things you need to know. I'm going to give you kind of three things and some sub points in that. And we're going to call it all happy by the end of the day, hopefully, right? Here's the first thing, your attitude Your attitude at work matters. It matters, right? And we've all worked with grumpy people. We've all worked with complaining people. We've all worked with lazy people. We've all worked with people that just frustrate you to no end. And part of this too, we've all worked with those Christians that have been obnoxious, right? I'll get to that in a minute. But with this, your attitude matters. And it's interesting. I, um, uh, pastor Scott, uh, the executive pastor I work with for those who listen, but maybe aren't a part of Redemption Church. Um, he is the chaplain for the police and fire department here in the, in the area. And he was at a meeting recently with the chief of police and the, he was talking to all the officers and it was kind of a pep talk reminder or whatever else. And Scott goes, I don't know what this guy's faith background is, or if he has a faith background at all. He goes, but he said something that was really fascinating. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is, this is such a peculiar idea that the world is grabbing onto something that I think, like, this was our thing. We need to get back to this thing. But this police chief tells his officers, he says, when you're out in the community, your job, you ready? I want you to love the community. This is what the chief of police, I think a non-believing person says, I want you to love your community. We are here not merely to serve it, not merely to enforce things. We must love the community. So when you pull somebody over, you need to pull them over loving them. When you deal with some problem or crisis or like a domestic dispute, you need to roll in with the attitude that wants to love people, right? So this whole idea of loving your community as an officer I I heard that and it was just super profound to me. Like here's this disbelieving person using the idea of Jesus to help equip officers to do their job well because it shapes their attitude. Like if he would have said, you need to go into the community and be cynical. Be cynical because you know what? People don't like cops, at least some of them. Uh, be cynical because people are going to lie to you about whether they were speeding, about whether they were drinking, about what, you know, like, like just go be cynical. You know what? They're going to go out there and they're going to be cynical. But if you're telling them, hey, go out there and you love, you love the community. This is what your job is. Officer, job one, 
you're you're a communicator of love. That radically shapes the approach a cop takes when they pull a person over, address a situation in the community, handle a shoplifter that was just stopped at Safeway, deal with an inebriated guy that just stumbled out of his car. Whatever it is, it's going to shape things in a very different way. So for us, here's the thing. As a student, as a volunteer, as an employee, your attitude, if you're bringing Jesus to work day every day, is love, in fact. You need to love, you ready? Your job. You need to love your boss. You need to love all your coworkers, even that butthead that drives you nuts. You need to love everybody that you work with. Why? Because everybody bears the image of God, every single one of them, right? And so how, how good for us, how front-loaded for us that the excuse we have to love, even the just most frustrating, irritating dumb people that we might work with, volunteer with, or go to school with. Um, They all bear the image of God. And therefore you go, hey man, when I'm loving them, I'm loving God. Because Jesus says that in Matthew 25, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now I get it. There's gonna be some people that really drive you kind of personally crazy. And with that, maybe you have to have a certain level of boundary to love them well. That's totally okay, right? It's okay to have a level of boundary to love a person well. But you're still coming into it saying, I wanna love them. Here's another step. You need to work toward loving your job or loving your school or loving that thing you're volunteering in. Now, I'm not saying everything about it is fun. Everything about it you're going to like. But there has to be this thing where you're like every day saying, Jesus, help me to love what I'm doing. Help me to love the people I'm doing it with. Help me to love what it is we are trying to cultivate and accumulate in this world. Because again, I go back to the essence of the gospel is one part, what we're going to get to at the end of this, which is how do you share this message of Jesus? But the other part of the gospel was flourishing for the nations, flourishing for the world. So many of the jobs that people have, somehow you're bringing flourishing to the world, right? Like I, I think about a friend of mine that just started a job with a like a, a municipality septic um, facility. You know what? Cleaning up the community's poop is bringing flourishing to the world, right? Don't believe me? Read 1776 and what George Washington would do when soldiers didn't leave the camp to go to the bathroom. He would just execute them, right? Like he knew how dangerous that was. So when somebody works for something as simplistic as a sewage treatment plant, they are bringing flourishing for the world and they are loving their community by ensuring that sickness does not uh, invade or pervade the environment. So so that's a really powerful thing, right? My wife works at a hospital. That's kind of an obvious one on the surface of things. Some people hate lawyers in our community, but I go, you know what? Lawyers keep people from doing really stupid stuff to one another because they have recourse at least to deal with it in a controlled environment called called a court of law. So there are so many things that bring flourishing. Some of those things that bring flourishing are keeping decay at bay. I think about the police officers, for example, you know, like people are like, man, when a cop pulls me over, I'm so irritated. I'm like, right. But imagine if there's no cops and everybody just did what they wanted on the roads. You could drink and drive. You can speed as much as you want. You could break all the rules. You could pick your side of the road. You're like, I like the left side today. I don't want the right side today. Like it would be madness. And so police officers bring sanity to our world. So all the jobs that we have are designed at some level to bring flourishing. If you're in a job that brings nothing but pure decay, it's probably either A, an illegal job, or B, it's such a tragic thing that 
if you're a Jesus follower, you want to maybe look at that environment and say, hey, this should shut down, this should end, this should go away because this only brings decay. This is only about money. This is only about advancement. This does not bring any flourishing to the world, right? And I can think of jobs that would do that, certainly. But for the most part, I think everybody listening, you're in a job that somehow brings good to the world. So you then want to have an attitude that says, hey, I'm doing this for Jesus. I'm going to be sincere. I'm going to work hard whether my boss is watching or not because I'm seeking to have an attitude like Jesus and I'm going to love the job, not always love the tasks in the job, not always come over every day with a smile on your face and be like, that was rewarding today. I know that's not going to happen, but you're praying in the direction of, I want to embody this disposition at work deep inside that says, I am here to love Jesus by loving people. And when I love people, it shows I love Jesus. And I'm here to love my job because Jesus is my boss, according to Colossians 3. And that matters to me. Because here's the thing, the attitude we have in those environments starts to become, um, again, that, that, that mass and gravity element, right? So if your attitude is positive and you are authentically loving people and things around you, that marks you as a different person. Like we've all worked with Mr. Grumpy Pants, right? Like we've all done that. And we don't like working with the grumpy guy. We don't like working with the bossy guy. We don't like working with the short and, and stubborn female that just doesn't want to, you know, play by the rules and is causing office drama. We've all played and worked and you know operated with different individuals that kind of, you know, again, we can spot as not being healthy to the thing. We don't want to be that because our equity is really our lifestyle, our equity is our attitude. That's what people are going to measure first. Because if we just jump to the end and we're like, there's a guy I worked with named Tom way back in the day when I was working for Office Club. And Tom very much wanted to share his faith. And Tom was very much a lazy employee. And you know what my manager said to me? I had three managers said this about Tom. They're like, that guy's always wanted to talk about his religion, but he he is just a lazy ass, right? That's what they would say. He's a lazy ass. And he wants to talk about his religion all the time. Here's what they connected to that. Uh, Lazy and religion. (laughs) Like, oh, the guy that's talking about Jesus all the time is so lazy. It must be his religion drives his laziness. Like, so they couldn't help but associate one with the other in some capacity. So they had not only no interest in his religion, they saw his religion in a bad light because his attitude wasn't great, didn't work really hard, was always trying to get out of stuff, that kind of thing, right? So attitude is first. Second, very closely related to this, your actions matter. Your actions matter. And when I say this, it's not just what we were talking about, which is you're working hard, you're doing your job, you're innovative where you can be, you're creative where you can be, you're bringing added value to the company or the business or the volunteer system or the school or whatever. Like that's part of it. But then also your actions as far as how you play with the other kids in the sandbox, That you're the peacemaker, that you're the reasonable one, that you're the give and take person. If you're over other employees, that they trust you, they find you as safe, you're looking out for their well-being in some capacity. If you're at the lowest end of the, the spectrum in the organization, that you are trying to work your way up, not primarily because you know what, you want more money and you want more power and you don't want to do the sucky things at the bottom or whatever else, but, but you're doing it because you go, I want clout. I want reputation. I want opportunity. I want to be like a Daniel. I want to be like a Joseph that is helpful, useful, uh, that people see as imperative to the success of what can be in the organization. And from that, I get, I get more opportunity. I get more chance 
to then showcase Jesus and what I'm doing, right? Like that's why your actions are going to matter. So attitude and action then bolt together because that again is where your credibility is built. That's where anybody will look and go either I, I want that person around me or I don't want that person around me. I want that person to have greater responsibility in the organization or don't empower them in any way, right? Like that kind of thing. And there's a middle ground in there. I get it. Like not all of us are going to be able to eventually be vice presidents or CEOs or whatever else. You know, I I don't mean it that way or even like mid-level, upper-level management. It's totally cool if like you're like my job is always going to be I have the privilege of running uh, heavy equipment or my job is always going to be that I'm stocking shelves or my job is always going to be I'm in uh, childcare or whatever it is. And so there's not like I have management opportunities or whatever. Like it's all comes back to the same thing. Those are all incredibly noble life flourishing jobs, right? They bring flourishing to the world. That's part of what bringing the gospel to the world is all about is bringing flourishing to the world. So you have attitudes and actions that together give you a chance to then be like, hey, what motivates me? Why am I doing what I'm doing, right? Why am I working hard to get along with everybody? Why am I working hard to peacemake when there's strife? Why am I working hard to do everything out of sight as well as insight of my employer or the person running whatever the organization is? Um, I'm doing it for Jesus because it's bring Jesus to work day every day. So all of that, again, is building up your reputation, your credibility. And, And I'm really certain we live in a climate that more than ever, that has to be the dominant force of our sharing our faith publicly. Um, because we've we've had just too many scandals. We've ended up with too much bad blood, so to speak. People are not, I don't believe, compelled by messages that much anymore. Not really. Not, not, not religious messages. I think they're compelled by messengers who embody the message. And then from that, they go, ooh. Because part of this is, man, like I, 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 my kids are all on TikTok. I am not on TikTok. There's a day coming where I'm going to have to be on TikTok because I think as a church, we're going to start leveraging TikTok on some stuff. And I'm like, oh man, another piece of social media I got to worry about, right? Um, but on TikTok, there is a whole flurry of kind of anti-Christian, anti-evangelical, anti-whatever. And much of that, it's hard to argue with because there's been enough, again, just chum thrown in the water, the sharks can gather pretty easy. So so with that, we have to counter the voice, not with voice, but we have to counter the voice with the, 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 the messengers so embodying the message that others are willing to then hear the message because they're going to already see the message alive and in play in us, right? That's kind of the idea behind it. So this is why attitude and action matters. But then with that, your approach matters, right? So if you're bringing Jesus to work and you're doing all of this for the goal of actually being able to say Jesus out loud or speak to the concrete elements of your faith, which I do think is the goal. Like, I don't want it to be like, hey, we all just have lifestyle evangelism and that's as far as it goes. No, we actually want to say, and it's in Jesus' name. At some point, we want to do that. But in this, our approach, it matters, all right? So attitude, action, approach. Here's the first approach I want us to remember. You need to share it, but you don't need to sell it. 
All right. I, in other words, uh, I don't think it requires us to be pushy or forceful. I don't think it requires us to suddenly spark up an awkward conversation with somebody that doesn't really fit the context. Like I've done that before historically where it just made no sense at all to like suddenly bring up like, hey, are you a Christian, Steve? You know, like, like, uh, you know, where it didn't even fit the context. Like we're sitting there talking about whatever it is, the problem of the forklift that didn't work in the warehouse. And suddenly I just bring up, do you know Jesus, Steve? Like, you know, it doesn't work, right? So um, I think it just means, you know what, I'm trying to figure out how to authentically get to a, a space of conversation about it, but I'm not trying to push it. I'm not trying to jam it. Um, you know, I'm just trying to just share it, not sell it. I'm trying to be human in that way, because here's what, what will turn people off is if we're a weirdo for Jesus, just honestly, I'm just telling you, right? Like, so let's just be candid. You've all probably been introduced to weirdos for Jesus. Like I think about this one guy uh, back at the gym a few years ago where he would want to share Jesus at the gym when people were working out and you would just watch it. He would come over and he would ask like the awkward questions of like, so is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Well, some guy is benching and the guy's just like, you know, puts this bar on the rack. And he's like, uh, uh, no, I don't, I went to church as a kid or whatever else. And this guy was trying to spark up a conversation while the guy's in the middle of sets, right? And you just could see the guy, like once this dude that was trying to share would walk away, the guy on the bench press would just kind of get this just furrowed brow look on his face. Like, what the heck was that? That was just the lamest thing ever. Hope that guy leaves me alone at the gym from now on, right? That's a weirdo for Jesus. We don't want to be weirdos for Jesus, right? Because as it is, right, uh, religion is an interesting topic as far as flip the script for a minute and imagine that a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim was seeking to evangelize you, right? How would you want that to go down? How would you not want that to go down, right? What are the environments that you would just be irritated? They were talking to you. What are the environments that you would at least want to engage with them? And maybe from that, share your own perspective in your own faith. Like if you can just do that, here's what I know. When you're hanging out at the beach, when you're on the bench, when you're in the grocery store, trying to load up your basket, those are probably the times where when somebody wants to out of nowhere, talk about faith you are the weirdo if you're talking about it, right? So we don't want to be weirdos. We want to be authentic. We don't want to sell it, but we want to find the right space to share it. From this, the next thing is then look for strategic moments. Now, I don't have any magical thing on what a strategic moment is, but let's say you're at work. It's break time. You're in the break room with somebody else. Here's a strategic moment uh, and a strategic lead-in that can be really helpful. You're hanging out with them. Maybe you know them a little bit and you say like, Ann, what's your story? I would love to hear your story. Like we work together every day. I don't know your story. Tell me how you grew up, right? And so they might share the story. And oftentimes people have trauma in their story or sadness in their story or whatever else. Uh, or they have like went to the school, did this thing, whatever else. And, and you want to lean in when they're sharing because here's the thing. That question is not a Trojan horse to sharing the gospel. That question should be a sincere question. You actually want to know their story because you're getting to know them because I think the strongest form of evangelism today is friendship evangelism, right? Where somebody sees you as a friend, you see them as a friend, you know their life, they know your life. And from that, because you're also keeping your attitude and action in the equation, always, they already see something different in you. Now we're getting to know each other. And from that, there's a vulnerability that develops in communication, in an understanding, in a sense of telling each other stories. And then in there, you can then tuck in other questions like, so did you ever like grow up? 
going to church as a kid or did your family have any kind of faith background or whatever else? Like that's a good leading question. And it's non-threatening. You're not trying to tell them about your faith. You're asking them about their experiences with faith. And then from that, you might hear them say, yeah, I grew up in the church, but my parents were like super religious. And then when I was 17, I had sex with my boyfriend and they flipped out and it was a total mess. And so I knew at that point I was leaving home, going to college, never coming back because they just shamed me so much by what happened. Like you can hear that story and be like, oh, okay. So this person sees that there is a level of of hurt or trauma related to their history in the church. And that's what I'm paddling upstream in relationship to. That's the thing that now I'm trying to disrupt the stereotype of how they see a religious person in light of their life, right? So you're gathering information, you're gathering uh, kind of a sense of perspective on where they're coming from, and it helps then let you be more guided in how you interact with them as it pertains to you slowly sharing little layers of your faith in their life by asking questions of their life, right? So that's why you want to do that with those strategic questions. Um, Maybe another one is just simply tell me about your family, you know, and, and they can tell about family and kids and marriage and everything else. And from that, you might find things are good. Things are hard. They got a kid that's having a hard time. And if they have a kid that's having a hard time, they're like, yeah, my 13 year old um, just is really kind of confused by a lot of things. It's puberty and they're trying to figure out who they are and what they're doing. And we found out that they were looking up porn online. And then as parents were like, what do we do? And everything else. And, and you can simply say, man, I know it's really hard raising kids. It's like, why did we get into this sometimes? It's so difficult. Um, do you mind if I pray for you about that? Cause I just know that's really hard. Like that's a little in that you can have. That's a concrete way of sharing Jesus and bringing Jesus to work with you that day, every day. And it's not something where suddenly it's, you know, Hey, if you died and stood before God today, why would, why would you, what would be your reason from letting you into your his heaven? Like that, that kind of thing. It's like so abrupt and so challenging. Most people get just like, whoa, now you're the weirdo Christian. But, but if you had something like, Hey, can I just pray for you about that? Or I just want to let you know, I've been praying for you. I know that was hard. We talked about it a couple of days ago, just praying for you. I'm the praying type. That's what I always say to people personally. I'll say, I don't know about you, but I'm the praying type. Just want you to know I've been praying for you. That's one of the ones I use at the gym a lot with people when I'll end up between things of when it's not like they're bench pressing and I try to spring some crazy Christian weirdo thing on him. Um, we just get to know people at the gym. And then from that, they kind of share like, oh, I have this problem with my kid. My marriage doesn't go so hot right now. I'm down here because my wife and I had a fight. And so I just decided to blow off some steam. And I'll just say, hey, well, I'm the praying type. So I'll just go and pray for you. You know, I remember meeting this one guy and his daughter. I said, hey, I've never met you before. We were there. This is weird. We were both there at three in the morning, which is if you're at the gym at three in the morning, you probably got issues already, right? Like, and for me, it's because it was Sunday mornings. I would go in before I do all my prep. So I go in about three in the morning and uh, there was this other guy at three in the morning. I'm like, dude, if we're both here at three in the morning, I just thought I'd meet you. My name's Matt. And he told me his name and he goes, yeah, I work, you know, like these weird shifts. And so this is the only time I can get in the gym, uh, but it's kind of hard because it's going to change because my daughter has to go into surgery and she's like six months old and it's really stressful. And so that's the thing I use, dude, it sounds really painful, man. If you ever need anything, let me know. My name's Matt. And I just want you to know, I'm the praying type praying for you. So that's another way you can kind of do some of that. Um, another question that you can spring, cause here's the big idea I'm getting behind this it, really with, with the whole, um, your approach is it's thinking in terms of being inquisitive more than being informative. All right. Let me say that again. It's in the spirit of being inquisitive more than being informative. And the reason I say that is because I think if you're truly inquisitive, it's going to give you more space to be informative. I think evangelism so often was trained that we are the tellers. We are the informers. 
Uh, and yet I think to create more of a level playing field of interaction, the more we are the inquirers about people's lives, the more than we can respond in ways that can then inform them about our life or our perspectives or our thoughts, not in a pushy way, but just in a, we're having a conversation, right? Um, in fact, Patrick Scott was telling me about a book called Conversational Evangelism. That's kind of the essence of some of this, um, where you are creating space for actual relationship <coughs> and friendship because in there, that's where you can share Jesus. And Jesus can be shared in a safe way, and you're not just some oddball evangelist that's trying to put notches on their evangelical belt, which is kind of what would happen in yesteryear and the way people would perceive it, right? So another question, you might look at current events and just ask them, hey, what do you what do you think about that? Now, here's the thing, and for those watching, I'm leaning into the camera right now. For those not, I just leaned toward the microphone. I got really loud while being really quiet. You kind of want to be an agnostic at work on certain things, all right? So when you ask questions about uh, current events, what do you think about what's going on in Russia? What do you think about what's going on in politics? What do you think about what's going on with whatever it is, right? Um, that can be spooky space, right? Because you have opinions. I think one of the things I'm becoming more and more certain of is that we as uh, Christians – we need to to really stow the baggage of our opinions on stuff that isn't eternal. That doesn't mean we don't have opinions, but I think in the quest of being outreach oriented, um, we need to take some of our political opinions and tuck them in our backpack, especially with people that we're reaching out to. We need to take some of our social opinions, stuff them in our backpack, uh, especially when it comes to people we're reaching out to. Um, because the people we're reaching out to have a lot of opinions. And you got to remember, when you're in a, a space where all it is is kind of this world for the most part, um, well, then, of course, you're going to look for things and tools to ensure safety, security, and serenity in this world. That That's super normal. Like, this is the thing sometimes I'm sad about us as Christians is that we buy into the same game and we want security, safety, and serenity in this world and we'll sacrifice Jesus things to get those things. So we'll, we'll align with certain political ideologies or social ideologies that frankly are 100% opposite of Jesus or undermine the gospel completely, but we don't care because we want safety, security, and serenity today, right? We want to make sure the economy is good for us today. We want to make sure that the military is big enough for us today. We want to make sure that I can have my best life now today, you know, and, and we then lose track of what actually matters. This is why I go, there's some things that we should just shove in our backpack. In other words, this is what I think. This is what I feel. This is what I believe. These are my opinions, but these are earthly ideas and earthly solutions for earthly problems. And I have a much bigger, more important thing, which is a missional agenda, missional message, and therefore I need to have a missional life. And from that, when I ask people about things in the world, I can hear about their fears. I can hear about their frustrations. I can hear about their opinions, and it gives me a better sense of where they're coming from and therefore how I can better reach out to them. So if you work with somebody and you find out they're 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 really frustrated about this Texas law on abortion and they're really frustrated about this Florida law on don't say gay and they just can't believe that this is happening in America after all the strides for gay rights and all the strides for women's rights and everything else is you're hearing them if you're asking about those questions instead of you being like hey I'm going to push back on all of those things right now you're better off to just listen and go man I can understand that. If I were in your shoes, I'd be really frustrated by those things too. I'd be really freaked out by those things. I think you can go so far as to say, you know, I kind of fall in a different environment with that, but I understand where you're coming from. Because again, here's what I'm thinking there. If 
all there is is just this world and all there is your scriptures are the laws of the land and that's all you have. Um, they're cleaving to those things pretty dramatically and until they feel safe with us and feel safe that they can share things with us that we may even disagree with and yet we are really loving them and staying in the pocket with them, until they feel safe with us, they're not going to hear us out. And so when we even invite those awkward, odd, even disagreeable things and we don't flinch but we continue to love them, you're building equity. You're building the opportunity to share something different, right? And I think to be understanding in other people's fears, even if you don't share what their fears are, but you share understanding for fear, that humanizes the relationship. And that gives you a sense of where they're coming from and therefore how you can begin to pray for them more, how you can um, sort of tailor your conversations more. All of that comes into play. Because here's a phrase for you today. Ready? Heard people hear people. Heard people hear people. In other words, if people don't feel heard by you, they're not going to hear you, right? So all of this just comes back to gaining equity, gaining steam, all right? Everything like that. Um, Because at the core of the day or at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is model. We're trying to model what Jesus looks like in a real context. We're bringing Jesus to work with us today, every day. um, And we're showing how he was safe. He was gentle. He was lowly. We were taking his lessons. We're learning those and we're doing those things. We're trying to embody the kind of person that he was where people that were messy, people that were different, people that were uh, on the, the fringes, they just wanted to hang with the guy. They just wanted to be near him, right? In their mess, they wanted to be near him. And so all the more, we want to be those types of people in whatever our context is. Work, school, volunteerism, doesn't matter, right? We're trying to be... Jesus, because that's what we're called to be. Not just simply to believe in Jesus, not simply to worship Jesus on Sunday, read his book throughout the week in a quiet time or whatever else. No, we're supposed to be like Christ. That's the highest form of worship. That's the highest form of sacrifice. That's the highest form of dedication. That's the highest form of commitment and the highest form of love. And so when you go to work after listening to this podcast or school or whatever the thing is that you're doing, your, your mission is simple. My attitude is I'm going to love what I'm doing. My actions are going to prove I love what I'm doing. My approach is I'm going to love what I'm doing in such a way so I can have questions, have dialogue, have interaction so that people feel heard so they can hear me. I want to model what it means to follow Jesus by being like Jesus. And then looking for the opportunities to ask questions, share commentary, and in that, hopefully, share Jesus. Invite a person to church. Get that open door and do some stuff. And I think the more we do that, the more we will be effective everyday missionaries.